0: okay so the first half was just me doing a a bit of a a download on you i appreciate that this is not like a nice simple three-point sermon that you can all go away and go yes these were the three points that he said you'll probably go what did he say Uh, at the end of this Uh, so the second half i want to now ground this a little bit into um, some kind of theology so on our youtube channel uh, which is storehouse7 um, I'm doing a series called The Blueprint of the End Time Church, which is a nice, you know, grandiose title. But actually, ironically, it's just going back to the basics of what church is. And uh, I think it'll be an eight part series when it's finished we're up to number six at the moment. Uh, but I, So it goes through all this in much greater detail. So if you want to like really break it all down, listen to that as well. And there's all the notes and stuff are, on, are available as well that can be sent to you if you want that via email, etc. OK, so there are three key areas to christian life so the first area is known as inner court life so if you think of the um, solomon's temple so you had the main building in the center which was the sanctuary itself okay which in that sanctuary was the holy place the most holy place then you had the outer court and then you had the centrality of life with the temple in the city of jerusalem okay so these are kind of like the three uh, three key areas so with inner court life outer court life and then the centrality of temple life now what i've found and and this has been my my uh, experience as well is that over the years we're really good at living outer court life the busyness of christendom you know we're very close to the holy of holies but you know we're in that outer court we're just busy doing this we're doing outreach and we're and we're planting churches and doing lots of great kingdom things but actually we're not really availing ourselves much of the centrality of what we are supposed to be and i'll come to that in a minute and so the question that we have to ask ourselves is what is the church's primary function strip everything away that we think we know what church is what is at the very epicenter of the church okay so let me use a bible today as well so um i'm going to turn to first of all uh isaiah 56 may i ask chris if we don't want to take
1: notes this
0: in your talk so we can watch them slowly yes yeah it's all there yeah yeah this is kind of like a condensed version so um uh, where I mean? so uh, isaiah 56 verse 7 and it says uh these i'll bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people so first and foremost, and you think, well, Chris, that's Old Testament. OK, what did Jesus say about when he cleared out the temple? He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He didn't say it shall be a house of outreach. Not that these things are that we have to do all these things. We have a mission. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is, as our focus is not on actually what Jesus taught us that church should be. We have made ourselves busy with many things, but the heart mission of the church is that it must be a house of Of prayer and that means within that context it means we have a priestly function within that and this is another thing you don't hear many people teaching on the priesthood of believers the priesthood of believers is that you have an obligation and an honor to come before the Lord as priests unto God and operate in that ministry and in the function of a priest the Bible has more to say about you being priests than probably anything else You know, I know we love to hear about how good we are and how awesome we are and how much Jesus loves us. But the Bible has an awful lot to say that we actually have a specific priestly function. Many years ago, uh, I got to a place in my ministry where it seemed I was taking one step forward and three back, to the point where I couldn't take it anymore and and I just uh, I come to the end of my test and I said, Lord. If I don't get an answer to this, I'm, I'm throwing in the towel. I can't do this ministry anymore. It just seems that every time we try to get this church to grow, it just seems to diminish. And, um, and so we went away on a little break and it was in that holiday that God showed me something quite profound. Although you might think well, that's not profound. You should have just got that anyway. Um, and that was, he said, you need, he took me to Genesis and showed me that how the day begins in the evening. Uh, whereas we begin our day in the morning, don't we? But the day begins in the evening and in in the morning. And he said, that's one day. And he was like, there's the pattern. I'm like, what? And he says, you must live from a place of rest. That sounds great, but what does that mean? (laughs) He said, the hours that you're spending every day uh, writing a sermon, you know, for for the Sunday preach, you know, and all this research and all that stuff you're doing. He said, if you'd spent that amount of time ministering to me in prayer, I would give you the revelation that you need to do. And not only would I give you the revelation, but it would have power from it because it comes from the throne itself. And so I was like, "Ooh, that sounds a bit interesting, a bit novel. So I started to move my ministry into a completely different way. And I'm not lying to you. The week that I started to live this new way, the church began to grow. And everything just changed. It literally changed overnight. So it was learning to live from a place of rest, but it actually meant I was living as a priest and not as a minister of the gospel. You know, I'm too busy for Jesus to be busy with Jesus. Okay. and so now the focus of my attention in my own prayer life is I now spend uh, three hours in the presence of God. Uh, rather than three hours being busy trying to make the perfect sermon. So I now spend that time in the presence of God. And now from that place, that's where all the prophetic words comes from. It's where all this teaching and stuff comes from. And it's so easy. It literally, I mean, I got up the other day and I was walking out the studio and God just literally downloaded like all of this stuff straight into me. Uh, and then it's just extrapolated out to this eight part series and it's all completely grounded in scripture. You, you can't get that Unless, you know, the other way, unless you spend hours and hours reading loads of books and loads of notes and all this kind of stuff, and even then you probably won't get it. So if I can urge everyone in this place, one thing, it's live from the place of the Spirit. And it's not cookie land, it's not out fairy-fairy stuff, it's actually very grounded, but it's grounded in prayer, and it's grounded in that we are first and foremost, not evangelists, we're first and foremost, not husbands, not wives, not parents, but priests. And we minister first to God, not man. We minister to man out from the overflow of ministering to God because, as God said to me, you are guilty of ministry idolatry. He says, you are ministering to man first and then come to me. You should be ministering to me first and then you minister to man. Okay, and it changed everything for me, changed my whole dynamic. So let's look at some scriptures here. So uh, Ephesians 1, 2, Ephesians 1, 23. Sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. I'm going to use quite a few scriptures here because I want to try and ground this in the the Bible now. Um, And it says, talks about Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The body of Christ is the what? It's the church, okay? The church is the body of Christ. And this is another thing. The church is the body of Christ. This is not a slogan. This is not a bumper sticker. This is not a cool t-shirt line. This is a manifest spiritual reality on the earth. Christ the head is in heaven and we are literally the body of Christ on the earth, okay? We are individual members of that body, so I can't say I am the church because I get a lot of that. Hey, Chris, I don't need to go to church because I am the church. No, you're not the church. Only Christ can say that of himself because he is the church. He is the body of Christ. Okay, so Only he can say that. But we are all individual members of that body. And uh, let's now turn to 1 Peter (coughs) 2.5. I've got one of these like really slim line bibles it takes ages to find it uh 1 peter chapter 2 verse 5 and it's uh where are we it says you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable god through jesus christ and then if we move down to num verse 9 it says you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation. The Bible says so many times that you and I are a priesthood, a holy nation. And when you start to put all this stuff together, you begin to think, hang on a minute, if Jesus says his house is a house of prayer, and that's where the priests ministered, then surely if we are the house of God, because we're all living stones that form together to create the temple of the living God, then surely, therefore, we're also called priests of the order of Melchizedek. That's another big study. But we are priests unto God. Why is it that we are not operating daily in that function and in that ministry? Or maybe we are, but we're not really aware of it. When you realize that when you are first and foremost priests unto God, it changes everything. Because your whole dynamic, your whole mindset becomes shifted to the one of being a purpose driven Christian, whereas I've got to be busy for Jesus and plant churches and do all this, to actually God. Jesus is the main thing and it stems out of that place and from there. You know, when the Celtic Christians came to this nation, they didn't plant churches as their first and foremost thing. What they used to do is they'd find the worst place in Britain, the most demonized place where we would avoid it, and they would go, right, where is the worst place? And they'd go, I don't know, it's probably uh, Brighton or somewhere. So they'd all go to Brighton and they would just, uh, no, no, no offense for those in Brighton. (laughs) Then they would pray over that area and pray over it and pray over it. Then they would make it into a monastery And then that would become a place, a center of learning and a center of mission. And then they would train people up there and they would then send them out from the house of prayer and then they would plant churches. And that's the model which we need to come back to. We need to come back to this, that everything revolves around our function, which is not as evangelists, not in our secondary ministry callings as a pastor or whatever. Our primary ministry and our primary function is priests. And the Bible has so much, if you do a search on it throughout your Bible, it has so much to say. Now, I'm really trying to squeeze an awful lot here in a very short space of time. Now, we need to look at some Hebrew for a little minute. Um, so the Hebrew word for house of prayer is a bet ha-tefillah, uh, which is better known today as a synagogue. Okay. Now, synagogue is made up of three key components, and I'll bring this back to scripture in a minute, in case you're thinking, what's that got to do with the church? Okay, so the traditional functions of a synagogue is threefold. Firstly, it's a bet hatafila, which means it's a a bet, a house of prayer. Okay, so it's a a place of prayer. It's also a bet hakanesit, which means it's a place of assembly. Okay, so the idea of the church being just me, myself, I and Jesus and God channel, that's not church. Okay, that's just you on your own watching the telly. And then the house, I don't mean to be rude, I'm just saying it as it is. And then the other one is bet midrash, which is a house of study. So the, the key elements of a synagogue are that we come together to pray, and in that praying is worship as well, that we come together as a community, and that we come together to study as well. So you can see the focus is very different. The focus, and I'm sorry if I'm treading on toes here, it's not a seeker-sensitive culturally relevant church it's actually you no. Know, the church is here for the church the body of christ we're here to pray to god to worship god we're here to gather as a body and we're here to study the word of god as well so these are three key foundations now where do we see that in the new testament now the apostles were they gentiles or were they jewish jewish, jewish. okay so if i now turn to acts 2 and have a look at this you just see the model being um, reinvented, so to speak, in the context of the New Testament church. So if I turn to Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. um, Where are we? It says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay, not prayers, the prayers. We'll come back to that a little bit later. And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done. All who believed were together, had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Again, another key important part of church is that we look after people, that people are more important than buildings, okay? Day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." And so we see the birth of the church. And the birth of the church came out through a prayer meeting, by the way. Okay, they were in the upper room and they were praying. They were being a house of prayer. And then came from that, came the church as we have it today. But when the early church was kind of exploded and started moving and started growing, they were those three core components. They gathered corporately. They gathered together. They gathered to study the word, but they gathered to pray. And it says they gathered for the prayers. Okay, so we'll come back to that a little bit later. Then we get to the famous passage in Hebrews 10.25, which as, says, Oh, let us not forsake the gathering together as some in the habit of doing, but, you know, as the day of the Lord approaches, encourage one another, etc. Well, the word there in the Greek is the Greek word synagogue, which is where the word synagogue comes from. And so this is really interesting because some people will say, Well, I, I don't need to be in a church to be a Christian, or I don't need to be, congregate with other Christians, you know, I can just be by myself and stuff. The scriptures are very clear that a synagogue is a house of prayer with worship. It is a house where a Knesset, where you all come together. It also has some form of leadership to it as well. It's not just like a gathering of people in a coffee shop. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That is still a form of assembly. Um, and also it's a place where they study the word. And so you can see this in the book of Acts. You can see this in the letter of Hebrews that the guy is saying, you do need to have these kind of formal meetings where you come together, where there is leadership, where you're gathering together as a body, where you're studying the Word together, and you are being a house of prayer. Okay, so we see this quite clearly in the New Testament. I don't have time to go to all these scriptures, but Revelation 1, 6, Revelation five ten talks about us being a, king, a, a kingdom of priests unto the, unto the Lord. Okay, we'll see the fullness of that when Jesus returns, but in the meantime, we should still be an expression of a priesthood on the earth. Now, to understand what life is like as a priesthood, we need to understand our Old Testament. So I hope you're all avid students of your Old Testament. OK, Hebrews 10.1 says that the Torah is a shadow of things to come, but not the reality itself. And so when we look at the Levitical priesthood, What's interesting, and again, I don't have time to go into this as a big theological thing here. So in Revelations chapter 4, I think it's 4, 6 and 8, we get a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. So we see angels that are actually having a priestly function. Okay, Angels are actually priests. You might not realize that. But they come before the Lord with the laver and the incense and all that kind of stuff. They're operating in heaven just like the Levitical priesthood. But remember, Moses was told to do the tabernacle and make it according to the pattern. In other words, that pattern's already existing and is going on in heaven right now. So when you understand the book of Leviticus, it's not a, not a really obtuse, boring book, but when you understand that it, it's a shadow and type of what's actually going on in heaven and the work of Christ as our high priest, it will also reveals to us our ministry as priests in this age as well. But we're of the house of Melchizedek. And again, I don't have time to go into that. Uh, you can do a little study on that yourself. Um, so here's some functions from the Old Testament priest. So they were ordained by God to offer sacrifices. Uh, they were to teach the law. It um, says the law, Jeremiah 18:18, 18, 18, the law shall not perish from the priest. They determined whether a person was sick or healthy. Um, what else? Uh, priests healed the land, Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, also in Deuteronomy 21, it says righteous living is good for the physical land. So in other words, when the church isn't behaving herself, it's to the detriment of the nation in which she's in. And that's why Britain's in so much trouble. Um, then obviously, um, prayer is a key component of the priest. As we know, Second 2 Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people, you know, will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and pray, then I will hear from heaven and then I will heal their land. Okay, amen. Priests were mediators between God and people. Now, this is another thing which which Protestants get their knickers in a twist about. You know, I I don't need a priest or anything. I'm I'm not having no mediator between me and God. Not realizing that you yourselves are mediators because you are a mediator between God and the rest of the world. And so we kind of mediate between each other all of the time. We just have these really obtuse ideas um, and blind ourselves from who we are and actually the purpose within the church. Um, Yeah, so when priests priests sinned, they brought guilt upon themselves and upon the nation. That's Leviticus 4, verse 3. Priests were intercessors, they would inquire of God on behalf of the nation. Leviticus 9, number 6. They were scribes for the nation. 2 Chronicles 34. Priests were the nation's regulators, making sure accurate weights and measures were being used in the nation. 1 Chronicles 23, Leviticus 19. Uh, and, on, and on and on, I can go. Then we come into the spiritual sacrifices. Now, when I talk about spiritual sacrifice, you know, when we heard that, that famous scripture, it says, you know, offer up a sacrifice of praise. Okay, most of us as Christians, this is how we interpret. I'm feeling so miserable today that just to praise God is such a sacrifice. That's not what He is saying. He is saying, look, when you have this mindset that you are a priest, he's saying, look, guys, instead of going out and get your uh, local lamb and cutting its throat and blood squirting everywhere, why don't you offer up sacrifices of praise and prayer instead? Can you see what he's saying? And when you understand that in the context of a priesthood, it makes you realise the importance of prayer. It makes us realise the importance of worship and what it means to God yeah and when when you realize that it's that important to God these spiritual sacrifices you think wow man I could just do this all the time I could just have some you know i don't know what your theology is in this but i could have some hill song on in my car and i could be singing away and while i'm singing away all this like incense is coming out of the car because i'm praising god and sweet incense is going up to the kingdom of heaven i know that every time that i am praying that somehow that there's incense that's going up into heaven right right now whenever i pray and i'm operating in my priestly function i don't know about you but that makes me excited because my purpose now is in my priesthood not in my calling How many Christians have gone around saying, oh, Jesus, what's my calling? And they're running around here, there and everywhere because they want to get a platform or a name for themselves and they're feeling really frustrated, where the reality is, no, your primary function and your primary calling is not as an evangelist, not this, not that, not the other things, even though they're important. Your primary function and calling is a priest, therefore operate in it. And if someone had told me that when I was a pain in the backside to my pastors when I was younger, I could have just come into such a greater greater place in God that's taken me most of my life to get me where I am now because you know I've had to learn this stuff and now starting to walk in it and now I see the power of it now remember what I said about in heaven how that the um there's a there's a tabernacle in heaven right now this is all the book of revelation there are saints up there and there are angels up there that are operating in a priestly function so they're doing that right now but when you realize that what was going on in the, in the Mosaic tabernacle is a shadow and type of the reality of what's going on up there, then you come to some really interesting revelations. One of these revelations is, remember in the book of Acts, it said that they prayed the prayers. Okay, let me explain what that means. So as I said, our prayers, they offer up to God, they ascend a smoke and incense like the uh, the old days the incense was go up in the sanctuary of the temple. Uh, But that incense went up at certain times of the day. Um, And so the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, doesn't it? Uh, Has anyone ever tried that? Okay, That's because we're thinking as individual Christians. (laughs) Paul didn't address it to you personally, he addressed it to the church. If the church is praying at certain times throughout the day, then because we all live in different time zones, well not in Britain, but because the church across the world is praying in different time zones, it actually means the body of Christ is praying without ceasing. And when you realize, actually, this is, the, this is addressed to the church, not just to me personally, then there's so much wonderful things that you can do with that. Now, again, I don't have the time to go into all the scriptures here, but talking about praying the prayers comes from things like Psalm 5.3, 5, Psalm 55.17. Daniel, in Daniel 6.10, he prayed three times a day. And you think, well, why is that? Why, where did that come from? Psalm 119 verse 164 says, uh, I will praise you seven times a day. And that's where in the early monastic traditions, they prayed seven times a day, which gave birth to things like um, Matins, Lords, Prime, Terse, Sex, Non, Vespers and Compline. OK, and I've got this great quote here from medieval Christianity. Talking about Jesus, at matins he was bound, at prime reviled, condemned to death at terse, nailed to the cross at sext, at known, his blessed side they pierce, they take him down at vespers, in the grave at Compline lay, who henceforth bids his church these sevenfold hours always pray now when we look in the book of acts we can see that the disciples gathered at the third hour to pray acts 2 verses 1 to 15 they prayed at the sixth hour acts 10 9 they prayed at the ninth hour acts 3 1 and they prayed midnight prayers acts 16 25. why is this why were they praying the prayers at certain times go right back into our old testament so just to keep it simple Basically, around about 8 o'clock in the morning, you would have the first incense that would be put up in the temple. Then at 9 o'clock, you would have um, an animal that would be chosen to be sacrificed. At 12 o'clock, the animal would be attached to the altar. Then at 3 o'clock, the animal would be sacrificed, and then you have evening prayers around about 6. Why is this relevant? Because Jesus was handed over to Pilate to be crucified at 9. He was put to the cross at 12, and he was crucified and died at three o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus followed in that ancient temple system, which is a prototype and a shadow of what's actually going on in heaven. Okay. So the early Jews, during the Great Dyspora, when they were sent out of Israel and they had to go and live in Babylon, they carried on that ritual of praying at certain times of the day. And of course the temple was rebuilt and we come to the New Testament times when Jesus was around, that was still a thing. What did they do at these times of the day? they prayed the Psalms and they would have basic liturgy which they would pray. Now, what happened then when when the church was born? They carried on that tradition and we can see that in the book of Acts. If you get a book on this and do some studying, you can see that the church prayed at certain times of the day all of the time. Then the early church carried on that tradition and that's been in the established church for 2,000 years. But for us as evangelical Christians, I find that we're completely disassociated from the heavenly pattern. And if I'm a priest and I'm supposed to be linked in to what's going on in heaven, Jesus said, Lord, you know, our Father who art in heaven, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. And when the church can come into this place where she starts to align herself with the heavenly principles, which is all laid out in the book of Revelation. I'm sorry, I don't have the time to go into all the details and the theology behind it. But when you realize that you and I are priests, and that if we could follow in the tradition that came from the temple, that came from the early Jewish people, that came from the early church, and even Jesus followed it himself and how he died and everything, it is a, it is a shadow and type of what is actually going on in heaven right now. And when you begin to realize that, you're not just some random dude just praying. You're actually somehow connecting to something that is far bigger than you could ever even begin to imagine. As a priest, you're joining with the communion of the saints. You know, in those ancient creeds, it talks about the communion of the saints. You are, you are then, when you're praying certain prayers at certain times of the day, you are linking into the whole body of Christ on the earth, the church militant, with the whole body of Christ in heaven, the church glorified. And to me, it's just mind blowing that somehow that I'm just this little cog, but in a huge wheel of God's plans and purposes. And this is what I think God wants to bring back to this nation. So one of the things that I do as a crazy charismatic pastor is that I use this book here. This is called Divine Worship. Okay, this is this is not a a, a book advert, advert or anything. But the heart of this, this is a slightly souped-up book. So this is, all intents and purposes, the um, the uh, Book of Common Prayer at, it, at its heart. But this one is designed so both Protestants and Catholics can use it. Now, what's the crazy about this book is it doesn't matter whether you agree with Catholics or anything or not. When you pray these prayers, and most of it is just Scripture, and most of it is just the Psalms, you're bringing the two great houses that are opposed to each other together, in prayer, in unison, and I know that when I pray these prayers, I'm praying literally with millions of people around the world, the same prayers throughout the day, okay, and therefore now I feel more connected and part of something that's so bigger than myself, rather than being this charismatic Christian that's just doing my own thing you know, and do my own thing all the time. Now I'm connected to the wider body of Christ. Now I'm connected to the mystery that I'm a priest. Now I'm connected to the mystery of the temple that was revealed in the prototype. And that somehow that's connected to what's going on in heaven. I just think it's fascinating. I just think it's mind blowing. And though then part of that blueprint for us as Christians is it doesn't matter what denomination you're in, whether you like it or not, whether you want to do home groups or houses of prayer. You can be, be as charismatic as you like in your houses of prayer, but I would encourage people, and I'm not saying do this, but something like this where, you know, we are we are praying as the body of Christ. The Jews do it. The Muslims do it. Major parts of Christendom do it. But there's such a lot of Christian, Christians that are completely disenfranchised from this. And I don't mean the common book of prayer, but I mean that churches, no matter what denomination you're from, that we are truly of one body and one thread and one blood and one baptism and one faith because we're praying the same prayers. Can you imagine? This is revolutionary, isn't it, when you think about it? But we've been doing it already for thousands of years. But I think for a lot of us, we've lost it. And I do believe that this is what God wants to bring back. This is a part of the ancient past of this nation. This is something that that God delights in. Why would God not delight in his Psalms being prayed every day? Now, I was speaking to someone earlier. I, I went to Worth Abbey uh, earlier this year and I, I spent several days there with all these monks. And I also, a long time ago, when I was about nineteen, twenty, I got to work in a, in a convent for about uh, eight months or so. So I got to hang around with all these nuns and they taught me how to do contemplative prayer and things like that. And I'll tell you something now, which really shocks me. I went to Worth Abbey and I spent three days there. And when they all just got up and they rocked out the Psalms, the presence of God was so strong. Now I've been in some great charismatic Holy Ghost meetings. And I have to say, if I had to put it in percentage, you know, we are dialing around about 65. Those guys had it around about 95. The presence of God was so strong that it it was just like this thick cloud that sat in the room. And all these these people, because it's not, although it's a Catholic monastery, people from all different denominations come, and everyone's just like... (laughs) Because the presence of God is so strong there. And that really showed me something. God likes his Psalms being sung, God likes his Psalms being prayed, because why wouldn't he? It is the Word of God. It is birthed by the Spirit of God who is praying the prayers of Christ when he was agonizing on the cross or when he was in a place of rejoicing or when he set his face like flint for the joy set before him. The Psalms captured the whole emotion of the human condition. God, why is it that I'm being a good holy Christian and yet the righteous or the unrighteous seem to be so blessed and getting this and getting that? Why is it? Why is it that these good people are dying? And there's other times where it's Jesus, I just praise you. I just thank you for all the good things that you do for me. The Psalms contain the whole spectrum of the human condition and it's beautiful and it's honest and it's raw and God loves it. And we can be these crazy little churches dotted all over this nation in the days ahead. But imagine that at certain times of the day, no matter what denomination or your own little church plant going on or your own little house of prayer, knowing that at certain times of the day, we're going to pray these prayers because somehow it's going to link us and bind us together in a way that goes beyond the intellect because this is a spiritual unification. And so that's kind of... And I could go into a lot more detail here. one of the things that I believe God wants to bring back to this nation, this is part of those ancient paths, that just because we're charismatic and just because we're into the gift of the Spirit, does not mean we have to lose somehow the identity of Christendom in this nation. I do passionately believe God has a heart for this nation and God is going to do wonderful things with the church in this nation. But it's not just going to be, let's do something new. For the sake of doing something new it's going to be something new and fresh but at the same time it's interconnected with that which is an ancient path an ancient part of christianity in this nation so i'm going to end it there and uh, i'm just going to open it up for some prayer now now i've done extensive wow. notes on all this stuff with loads and loads of scripture so you can study it so if you want copy of that uh, you can speak to those guys over there i'll email it to them and then they can distribute it out to you guys okay so it's about 28 pages worth of notes so you can really study this meticulously so you can qu- qualify because i am being very generic today, i'm getting it out quick but there's a lot of things that i'm saying here it's all grounded in scripture and coming back to the heart of what the church is which is not a house of mission but a house of prayer amen hallelujah okay, so we'll do a A Q&A session now so um okay so, just put your hand up and ask away. Yes.
1: Um, you mentioned about um, part of your prophetic word was that these small groups, house churches, whatever, would you know, that's what's going to be needed if it all collapses and we can't meet in sort of organised institutional church. But how do you feel that at the moment it's? the institutional church as I call it is very much front led and very much you know, just one mouth at the front and lots of ears sitting down listening and a lot of people are just not equipped to go it alone if they have to yep. so surely there needs to be some sort of preparation and and teaching and strengthening of the body so that they're enabled to, to cope on their own so yes, to speak yeah, when yeah. it does come down because yeah. at the moment I think it would be disastrous because there's so many people who just go to church, you know, on a on a Sunday and maybe meet in, the, in midweek. But if that was stripped from them, they wouldn't know what to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So, uh, how how do we go about? You know, okay. uh, that needs to be done, doesn't it? it yeah. We can't just rely on on being fed from the front. We need to know how to meet, how to gather, how to yeah. one another, each other, and you know. How, what, what's the...
0: So there's two sides to that coin. The first side is that it said in the book of Acts that they gathered daily to hear the apostles' teaching. So there is the place where we do have to come and listen to, you know, men and women who are anointed Bible teachers or what have you. There is a place for governance in the body. There is a place, and this is, you know, I want to throw stones at me, but there is a place for for order. There is the fivefold ministry that God wants in His church, um, and it says in Ephesians 4 that those are there. For the equipping of the saints to bring them to the fullness of the maturity of the stature of Christ. In other words, if you don't have, if you don't have elements of the fivefold ministry operating in whether it's a house group or in large churches, you're kind of in trouble. So you do need good leadership. And yes, that means sometimes you get someone that spouts out to people who have sat down listening. But I completely agree with you in that our churches have have created this kind of depend not not knowingly but they've created this dependency kind of model where it's like well if there's no pastor or anything like that what just what we can do it's never crossed their minds that actually they might have some responsibility um so you know one of the things that we try to teach in our church is like actually you've it's not i'm not going to grow the church I'm doing my bit. It's your guys' responsibility to grow the church. I try and make, make them clear that the evangelism of the church is not down to me. It's down to everybody. I try to make everyone understand that they've got to be responsible for their own actions and stuff. And so, yeah, part of the problem is, is that I do think churches have not done a very good job at strengthening the body and equipping the body in that way. Um, and that is important. And that means as well that pastors sometimes need to let people in the congregation do stuff. You know, so although I'm quite prophetic, we've got one lady in our church who's really wonderfully gifted in that area. And it's like, well, why wouldn't I allow her to, you know, use her to like train people in prophetic? So we've got people like that going on. We've got all sorts of stuff going on where people are moving in their God-given callings uh, and everyone benefits from it. So why wouldn't I have a church like that? It benefits me, it benefits them. So yeah, so in answer to answer your question, it is a problem, but I do think with the, with the paradigm shift that's coming with the crash of the economy and stuff, people are just gonna have to learn to muscle up, basically, to put it bluntly, you know, because if you don't, then nothing's gonna change. And it's all, when it's down to you, what are you gonna do, wait for someone else to do it? Yeah, it's like, well, OK, I've got to do something. There's people around me that, you know, I could be a light to these people. I'm just going to like, hey, guys, you want to come around my house? We'll study some Bible or whatever and just start something. You've got to start from somewhere. Yeah, so that'll be my answer to that question. Anyone else?
1: Um, can I just ask something? But you kind of covered it this afternoon. But, um, you put out a, a prophetic word about people coming out of the, the house of um, the Church of England and the Catholic Church. Yeah. And a lot of people who are on a particular group were very confused by it. And they, they, they weren't sure where, where, what that meant. Yeah. And
0: so okay, so the two great houses, I mean, this is a prophetic word. Well, again, you've got to weigh it and test it. You know, It might be meat and cheese or something. But the, the two great houses is the Protestant movement and the Catholic movement. And those two houses do not like each other. They don't want to get on. They quite like the, the trench lines where they are, thank you very much. But there'll be people from within these two houses that are actually going to go, Actually, we we want to work with each other and and, and love each other. And from those two houses, I believe, will come a marriage. and, And again, this will be a British thing, where you will see Catholics and Protestants coming together to form something quite unique. I wouldn't call it a denomination, but something unique. And this is something God's been speaking to me about for a long time now. Um, but the two houses will be opposed to it. They'll be like, no, you shouldn't be doing this. This is not a marriage we want to see in this nation. We don't want to see Protestants and Catholics getting on like this because Catholics are all going to hell and the Catholics are saying, oh, the Protestants, they're all going to hell because that's what they think. Okay, so how could those two houses ever come together? Um, But I do believe that's, that's what's gonna happen. But one of the key things in all of this, and this is something that I'm quite passionate about, is that we need, I said this earlier, we need to stop making secondary doctrinal issues the thing that we fight about. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about Mary? What about this? What about that? But a lot of the things that we raise, you know, like communion, for example, well, the Catholics believe in transubstantiation. Yeah, but the Protestants believe in consubstantiation and others that believe in the divine presence and others that believe it's in memory only. The Bible actually agrees with all five positions. So who are you to say they're right and you're and they're wrong, or you're right, you're wrong and they're right. Who's to say that? You can't really honestly say, so I'm not going to fight about it. You know, I'm not going to have a bun fight with a Catholic because they believe in transubstantiation, but the Lutherans down the road believe in consubstantiation, the Anglicans believe in the presence only, and people down at the Baptist church believe it's in memory only. Who cares? We can still get along because we believe in the primary tenets of the Christian faith, which they all confess to. What I'm not saying is that, with, with, especially with the LGBTQ stuff that's going on in the church, there has to be things like the Apostles' Creed and obvious morality. If we can agree on the things like the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed and the morality of the Christian in the church, then we can we can learn to get on somehow. Yeah, and so that's really what I was saying to answer your question. Yeah, okay. But uh, but the prophecy said as well there will be it will be a, a contested and difficult. it's not multi- it's not multi faith. No 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 no. It's, because that's what people say. They said, oh no, he's, he's like moving in the spirit of Antichrist because he's talking about you know, one world religion. It's like, no, I'm just trying to get Christians to get on with each other. I'm not talking yeah. about everyone else's religion. That's quite clearly not biblical. Um, yeah, any, any other questions? Yeah.
2: In terms of preparing people, uh, which I'm sure we all agree with, certainly um, so my experience has been, some churches I've been to, there's an encouragement for participation. And it says, does not it, when you come together, each one has yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other places, it's very passive. So I'm just wondering what is your view on that okay. and what are you encouraging yeah. so that there's more participation even though clearly once you open it up, this physical time there is on
0: there. Yes, that's right. So one of the things, and now I'm talking to you now as, as one who is in leadership. So there are people dynamics. There, there's these that, this just happens, okay? If, if you, once you go from uh, 80 to 100, 120 people, the dynamics shift. When you go from 120 beyond that, then the dynamics shift again. So when, when there's a smaller congregations, then there's lots of participation which people can be a part of. It's a very family feeling to it. Uh, but then when you get above 120, and uh, forgive me for saying this, and we don't do this, but that's when you have to come into more, instead of, uh, working with the flock then you have to herd the flock because the sheer amount of volume of people there that you're really limited in what you can do so again in the book of acts we can see that everyone came together to devote themselves to the apostles teaching so there was that place where they came and they gathered and they sat and they listened but then they went off to their homes and then they did christianity as a life so so it all depends on your model but the way i see it is that that the heart of the church is not the sunday meeting uh, the heart of the church should actually be the life that you're doing with other believers throughout the week. So you can be ministering body ministry throughout the week. You can have your fellowship groups and you're, and you're operating in the Spirit. And, you know, and even on our, on our, our meetings, you know, during the times of worship, a lot of people prophesy and all that kind of stuff and things. And there's a lot of freedom for that. Um, so, you know, it's, but then if you look back at the charismatic renewal, you know, you wouldn't know who the leader was because the whole body were moving as well. So and I think that's the problem here is that we can't impose a model on something we can't yet see that's around the corner. It's a paradigm shift. So you might think I might be here in 10 years time thinking actually, you know, things were a lot different than I thought back then. You know, we're all on a journey. We just have to be open to see what God does. But what God doesn't want is rebellion in his house. There does have to be order and someone does have to be, uh, I hate the word, in charge, you know, like, If you went to a store and everything was going crazy, like, who's in charge around here? You know, there has to be someone that's accountable for it. Um, I've done church with flat leadership and guess what? We never went anywhere. And so there has to be vision, there has to be direction as well. We do need good leaders. Now, leaders are flawed and human just as much as everyone else. um, So they'll make things that are not popular sometimes. But there there is a case for good leadership as well in the church. So, yeah, hopefully that answers your question in some kind of vague way.
2: No, that's helpful. Yeah. And she just saw an additional. So again, been to meetings where somebody has spoken very eloquently and it's great the content. Then they stop often uh, if there's a prophetic gifted person there, and they say, "What do you see?" So that there is an encouragement for using the uh, the other ministries. Hmm. And I'm not sure that I've seen that recently or widely. So is that something that you're encouraging, or we do it
1: any other way?
0: yeah we tend to do it the other way so so what I'll do is I'll hear what the prophetic word is and then I'll just preach according uh, not always, but m- most of the time, well, not most of the time, but generally, depending on what I've got to do, but 50-50 probably the time, if I hear a really good, strong, prophetic word, it's like that's from God, I'll just throw out what I was going to do, and I'll just preach off that word instead.
2: Sorry, that implies you're hearing it. I'm just thinking about widening no, it. So no, no, no,
0: that's coming from the congregation. Oh, so, so, yeah, sorry, so if sorry, someone sorry, says, okay. says a word, I'll okay. just like scrap what I was going to say, okay. and then I'll, I'll actually just go off the, off that prophetic word. You. You know? we, have, we have
1: body ministry during worship. So it, it matures the congregation because they've got to take it, they've got
2: to weigh it, they've got to test it, yeah. which is okay. scriptural. So it could be sort of keep asking no, right. but So it could be dynamic. You're not necessarily meeting a week before or on the morning, at, you know, at 7 a.m. or something on a Sunday. It could be actually you've got to be prepared and you haven't got a clue if it'd be interrupted, and then something's interrupted because somebody shares something that you sense is, is right to yeah. expand on. Yeah, is, is yeah. That that's,
0: that's what I do, yeah. Yeah. yeah, which Yeah, most a lot of pastors wouldn't be comfortable with that, but uh, I've trained myself over the years to be able to do that, so that if that's what God's saying, I'll just quickly go, OK, right, this is it. God, give me some scriptures, write them down, get up there, and then just... You know, and then preach from that. You know, so that's that also works quite well as well. And again, that works better in a in a context where there's more of you. If there's a lot more people there, that works much better. Otherwise, if I was trying to preach and every two minutes someone wants to stop me and uh, and prophesy and stuff, I don't. Th- I think people would get really quite actually annoyed with that. Um, yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. So
1: Richard, um, do you have any advice for sharing some of this with people in the context of so from two thousand and fifteen? I've been feeling God say to me that every time I read my Bible and see the world that there's this huge, big shake, But I don't think I'm prophetic, and I don't know when, but I've been feeling it for a long time. And when I try and share that with people generally over, the, over a period of time, lots of people think it's slightly nuts. I'm obviously, because nothing major happened, although we can see it growing. Again, they kind of think, ah, oh, it's significant. So a position of trying to love people, and you want to share this stuff, have you got any advice as to how to to help us sink in
0: <laughs> yeah um, i mean i 'm very fortunate in the fact that because we we Trace and I planted the church that, w- that we're mainly in, um, therefore the people that tend to come to us are people that are already on that wavelength yeah. uh, i would i 've been in that situation where I was in other churches and I did try to share what I felt God was saying, and it was often falling on deaf ears. And that is a frustration. And so even as a leader, you know, I'm probably in my area. Although I do know that we're respected as a church, but they probably think we're just like off, off the wall a bit, you know, because of the things that we do, because they just don't understand it. They look at the world and go, I don't see anything wrong, um, you know, but, but things are clearly wrong, you know, and things are, are heading for a, a derailing off the tracks. You know, I, the answer to that question is I don't know. But it is deeply frustrating but you just got to be faithful and just just keep telling people and just you know because at the end of the day when it does happen then they'll be like knocking on your door hey mate what was it you were saying again you know and then they'll have your attention so you just you just gotta just gotta keep saying it and just be loving as well don't get frustrated or angry with people you know because there were times when you probably didn't get stuff and people were trying to tell you and you didn't get it you know so we've got to be gracious in that yeah
2: what does,
0: um, you've you mentioned, and you've given us the history and the development of the church through COVID and moving into fields, and, and, but you're now talking about moving to the second of a monastery. Yeah. So what, what does that look like? Okay, yeah, good question. What does a monastery look like? Do we all don cassocks and uh, so, no. Uh, so the the proposed building, which will hopefully be in, is it next month's Harts newspaper? Well, apparently, I haven't read the article yet. Oh, you yeah, have apparently, it might be. <laughs> So in that, you'll see the design of everything. but basically a monastery is, so we'll be doing things like praying the hours of the day. Um, so joining with other monasteries around the world and that. Well, obviously we're doing lots of other sorts of prayers as well, you know, whether it's like burn 24-7, that kind of stuff, lots of worship and things. But then, um, monasteries aren't just places where you just pray all day, they're also places of enterprise so in the old days when monasteries were around they were they were economic hubs as well so for enterprise so and on our particular one because we we are right next to our allotment uh, we make it a place where it's a residential place so people can come they can learn how to work the land actually do farming and stuff and we'll be working with the other local farmers in the area uh, and things like that Um, so it's a place of enterprise it's a place of prayer it's also a place of education so we want to you know there's a a local goss which is a fairman gospel homeschooling uh group we want them to come and join with us as well so again so it's education for children and stuff uh yeah so that really amongst other things excuse me is that i think i'd yeah i had way too much caffeine today i'm okay I'm all right I probably just need to drink water yeah yeah no i feel fine yeah so um that's, so, so that's what a monastery is. well, And also, it, on a Sunday, it will still operate as a normal church. But during the week, it will just be this place where people can come to pray. And not only that, from, from, from when that building is made, we're not planting churches anymore. The way we're going to do it is you can come to us, learn a model, and you can take that away and adapt it to wherever you're at. So we're not into building empires. It's just like it's very kingdom. Just come, learn it, take it away and do with, do with it as you will. Um so how, how do you book? Yeah, yeah. Let's build it first. So uh, in the meantime, we've got a prayer shack that we're building on the land, which is like a bar, like a stable structure so that we can just do as much prayer on that land as possible. Because people, unbelievers that come on that land, they all say the same thing. I had one young guy come on the land and he was like, I don't know what it is about this place. I just feel like I need to sort my life out because they can sense the presence of God. We have a lot of Christians that come onto the farm and they're sensing the presence of God because that's how it should be. If you're a house of prayer and the place is prayed over, because we do have prayer and stuff going up there, it, it, it should be people encounter the presence of God, not the glitziness of our smoke machines or how awesome the worship band are. Not saying there's anything wrong in that, but, but actually I, I just want people to experience authentic Christianity, where it's they encounter Jesus, you know, and you can't beat the presence of God, you know, because that, that just it affects people in such wonderful ways. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes.
1: Um. You were talking about how your um, relationship with God changed when you realized that the day began in the evening, right, as the Jewish day does. Can you just explain in a practical way how, how it changed, you know, what you
0: did, what you do? Okay. All right, so if I give you a breakdown of my three hours, so the first hour I, I use that. So uh, yeah, the first hour I I'll I'll will pray through. Uh, I'll pray through. I'm, I'm talking about the first. The first hour I'll read my Bible and study Scripture and stuff. So yeah, everyone does that, right? So it's not rocket science. The second hour. I'll be doing um, this and then intercessory prayer and things and just ministering to the Lord. But in the third hour, I do what's called Lectio Divina, so it's a form of praying the scriptures and meditating on the scriptures, and that's where I get That's where I get all my prophecies from. That's where God really speaks to me very clearly. So I've really learned to train myself through that discipline. And so all my sermons and everything comes from that. And so now my ministry is not from a place of me working hard and studying hard to get something. It's literally coming from the Spirit of God through meditating on the scriptures and hearing the voice of God. Um, And that's just, just, just changed everything. It's so simple. And yet, it's so profound. So, on our prayer school each week, we teach people Lectio Divina all the time. And the, the encounters they're having with God in that time and the revelation that they're getting on the Word not weird cookie out there stuff, but just like really deep theological, but with the heart of God to them personally. It's dynamic, it's, it's revolutionary, yet the church has been doing it for 1,200 years. There's nothing new. But again, it's like, we often think oh, if it's old, it's not good, right? We're, we're the Google generation. We just want it new. We just want the new thing, the new wine, everything. We just want new, 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 new. But actually, sometimes the gems are not found in the new, but in the ancient. So that's a little bit about what I do. So my my, my prayer life is much more contemplative as well. And an often thing, I've sometimes gone to, uh, I've taught on prayer at various places, and and you get some like uh, very strong charismatic and black charismatic Christians, and and they're brilliant intercessory prayer. But I I asked a question saying, do you often sometimes go into the prayer room where you just feel like you've got to do something, but you don't know what it is you've got to do? And they all said, yeah. I said, that's the worst thing you could ever get to in prayer. When you get like that, you must do nothing. You must come to that place. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. And one thing that charismatics can't do is be quiet. They've got to have some <laughs> worship music. and They've got to do something. They can't have some silence. But actually, God wants his people to just be quiet and just sit in the presence of God. It's called contemplative prayer or silent prayer and just sitting there in the presence of God. And that's what I love about Lectio Divina because it's read, meditate, pray, then contemplate you just rest in that presence of god and then you start to read again then you meditate then you pray and then you contemplate why wouldn't anyone want to do that it's just amazing it's like four forms of prayer all wrapped up into one yep any other questions is that in your notes um there i do mention it in passing and uh, and all the different types of prayer and stuff i have done like a 10 minute video on youtube on my youtube channel called how to do lectio divina um so yeah and i go through Lectio Divina, it's a Latin word for divine reading and it's, it's again, it's something the church has done for literally about 1,200 years. Um, and where's that in the Bible you might say? Well, Paul, I mean, uh, David says in Psalm 119, it says, how I meditate in your law day and night. Psalm 1 says it. Uh, it's in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. There are meditations everywhere in your Old Testament. And it says in Joshua that if you meditate, it says, if you meditate, you will have uh, success and prosper in all that you do. In fact, it's the only place in the Bible where those two words are put together. And so for me, as a, as a church leader, I want to be successful and prosperous in the things of God. So why wouldn't I meditate? Exactly. Amen. All right, I'd be an idiot if I didn't. Uh, any other questions? Yes.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking about the, um, how do you see the, the very local, you know, the, the gathering in homes which we've had some of that happening in our home, but where we worship is kind of like quite a long way away. Yeah. But not why it's here, it's not a long way away, but it's not local. So you, you interact with people and you will into the existing mothership as it were i just wonder how you see that in the future with the change in the shape of the church you have these monastery centers which i i get that and then we have our little lighthouses in our homes and then where's the macro from that i mean god will show us but so, this is,
0: this is again, it comes back down to good old fashioned relationship. So, the early monasteries, although they had hierarchy and structure in it, they were all quite, quite fluid with it, you know. Um, and it was all about interconnecting that one monastery at one end of the country would be really friendly with another monastery at another part of the country. And, and I think one of the things that we've got to get past is this whole this is my church. My church and I just do what I do in my church. But actually we've got to be a part of a of a bigger network beyond ourselves where there is that that community and cross pollination stuff. And I, I do think just good old fashioned uh, relationship is really key, you know. And that's what one of the things that I I do want to say about when this house group movement explodes in this nation, and it will because it has to, but it's not gonna stay house church forever. It will form into larger congregations again. And that there, there does have to be that sense of, you know, um a linking together in some way you know and I, I think just spiritually but also practically as well that you know that, that you know that you're not just out there on your own that you're part of something that's bigger than yourself as well and i'm not talking about man-made networks necessarily but i am saying that that is important uh you know because jesus whenever he saw that you know he saw the five thousand. Said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's important that things are linked in and that we're 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 not just our own little group, but we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think that's one of the keys for where we're going as well. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. So
1: do you see that in addition to, mon- to monastery um, communities are not like the only expression of
0: so so with the monasteries, bear in mind that, you know, God's going to do lots of different things. It's not all just be about monasteries. So the way I see a monastery is it's the center hub of churches, micro churches, big churches that are around it. So that is a house of prayer, which is kind of networked into those places. And so the powerhouse of those churches is the house of prayer. Um, because the thing is with houses of prayer, traditionally, they're not very missional. You know, um, no disrespect, IHOP and stuff, I'm probably saying something out of turn here, but they've learned themselves that they became, in some respects, although they've been praying for the nations, their, their evangelism was not that great. Uh, but but then when we realize that the houses of prayer are essential for the empowering of the local churches as well, that's really quite important. So, you know, it depends how you want to do it. But yeah, I think I do think relationships quite key. And also, we, we can't define a singular model as well. We're just going to have to be really flexible see what God does. Um, but I do think we need to be networked like a web that weaves across this nation, that somehow we're all in connection with each other. We've got to do away with this whole, oh, we don't talk to them and we don't do this with them. I just think that breaks God's heart. You know? Don't get me wrong, if there's a group that's clearly like right out there, heretic stuff, then yeah, fair enough. But, but if they're just you know mincing along Christians that are just trying to do the right thing, then yeah, we have to be in relationship with each other. Anyone else? Yeah,
2: Yeah? how do you you see the timing of what God's placed on your heart in view of the storm that's coming?
0: I, yeah, I I think, well, firstly, the storm, I think has already began. The wind is getting stronger and stronger. But I, I personally feel that within the next two years, you're gonna see it just like incredible things. I do believe you're gonna see the collapse of government. I think you're gonna see the collapse of our economy in the next two years. Um, God's spoken to me a lot about the economy, especially with the housing market. That that's going to be the one thing that's going to pull it all down. And although you know nationwide and Leeds are saying, "Hey, everything's great, everything's good," if you actually look at uh, look on uh, uh, economists who really know what they're doing, that can pull out the, the data from the figures that they're putting out, they're spinning it. Actually, things are really bad, and they're getting serious. And so with inflation, you see, the thing is, with inflation, it's gone up to what are we up at the moment? Is it about? Five points something. And so the interest rates of banks are around about, you know, f- between 499 and 599 et etc. And what, what we have forgotten is that that's normal. Yeah. Interest rate of five between, between uh, up to 8% in- uh, of uh, interest rate on a mortgage is normal. What we've been doing for the last uh, 15 years is not normal. And so what you've got now is we're going back up to normal and then it's just going to keep going up and then you could be pushing about 10, between 10 and 18% in, on, on mortgages. That's gonna feed right through and is already feeding through into the inflation data. The inflation data is broken down of many things. And they're saying, oh, look, food is down, food is down. But what they're not saying is rentals and things like that are going up. So core inflation is remaining the same, even though food is going down because there are other things. And also the inflation data is six months behind. So there's stuff that's now feeding into the system, you know, with higher interest rates and rents going up and stuff, and that will start feeding into our inflation data. So whichever way you want to look at it, things are not going to be easy for this country going forward. So yeah. So that so I say in the next two years um that a lot of this stuff is going to be really quite on our doorstep by then. Yeah.
1: So do you have um, teaching on preparing for financial collapse?
0: Yes, I've done a series called um Surviving financial famine. I did like a five-part series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all there. Yeah. It's a five-part series and stuff. So that's got lots of stuff in there. Anyone else? No. Yeah? Wow. Nine nine yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, I made a note here myself, which sorry, I can't read. Jay. <laughs> if the key first priority is to be a priest, yes, and I think it was then linking to be ministering to God. Yeah. yeah. What does that look yeah. like? What? what and, sorry, why does God need that? What's he looking for? Is it adoration? Is it reverence? Uh, could you just expand on that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Why does God need a priesthood? Well, the first thing we need to get our heads around is that is the heavenly pattern. We see that in the book of Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation, you know, not as uh, oh, yes, yeah, all about the end of the world, but actually see, see some of the heavenly stuff and try and see what's going on up there, you realise that this is a fundamental pattern that's been going on probably for eternity. Jesus is a high priest of that model. So, so you know, we, some of us get a bit funny about churches that have incense and all that kind of stuff. It's all very liturgical and all very stuffy, but that's actually what's going on in heaven. Because if you look at what the angels are saying, they're quoting Psalms. If you look at what's, what the prayers that are going on in heaven, read it in the book of Revelation, it's all scripture. So it's liturgical, there's incense, sense you have a high priest uh, you have priests coming before god so first and foremost the question to the answer to your question is because that's how god has designed it and that's how he's governing it god is king he is lord he has a high priest which is jesus of the order of melchizedek and we are with angels we are doing this priestly function and god wants that priestly function to operate on the earth as it is in heaven why does god want us to pray i don't know but that is what he requires. And if we want to see the church move into the things that we want to see, we want to see God move over this nation, God isn't going to do it because it's just some sovereign move of God. He will do it when we start accepting our responsibility as priests and start operating it because it's not a question of why. It's a question of you are a priest. This is not open for debate. It's not open to be questioned. It's like we just got to get on with it. And I think that, and also when you have this revelation that we are priests it begins to change how you do church as well. So for us, you know, we've planted missional church plants and that's not gonna work anymore because actually God doesn't want, you know, it's been successful in certain areas, but God wants his church to come back to the heart of everything, which is we are a house of prayer. We're not a house of mission. You know, yes, we're that's a consequence, but first and foremost, we're priests, we minister to God and we are a house of prayer. So. In answer to your question, why does God want that? I don't know, but I do know that that's the heavenly pattern and it's probably been going on for eternity, you know. Thank you. Okay.